You're listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. This week's sermon is preached by Nate Penley. Today we'll be in Genesis chapter 18. If you don't have Bibles, we do have Bibles in the back. I'm sure we can find someone and get them for you if, if you'd like to follow along that way. And uh, I'm always grateful to get the chance to be able to bring the Word to you uh, in Scott's absence. Uh, and yet at the same time, it's always a little bit of a weight on my shoulders because it's handling the Word of God. It's something I take seriously. And I hope that this is, in turn, a blessing to you. Uh, as we look into God's Word. But before we jump into Genesis 18, I think it's important to review a little bit uh, in order to set the stage here. Last week, we saw that in this stage of, of the story of Abraham, formerly Abram, Abraham is 99 years old. 24 years have passed since God made a promise to Abraham to make him into a great nation. A man who had no heirs of his own blood. And as we've seen last week, uh, as, soon, as we've seen these last few weeks, that God has been stretching and growing Abraham's faith. And despite Abraham's many missteps and sins along the way, God has been faithful to his chosen servant. But here, Abraham is now following and believing God for 24 years. He was 75 when he started, and now, 24 years later, at nearly 100 years old, Abraham still does not have his promised heir. 24 years earlier, when God had made this promise to Abraham, his wife Sarah would have been 66 years old, which is already well past the normal childbearing age. But now, 24 years later, Abraham being 99 and his wife at 90, God has reiterated and clarified his promise to Abraham that he is going to bear a son through his wife Sarah and make his descendants into a great nation. That's what we got to see last week in chapter 17. And we saw last week that while Abraham has believed God, he still doesn't really understand just how God intends to accomplish his plan. As a result, he laughed, in verse 17 of chapter 17, he laughed at the plan of God to bring a child through Sarah. Abraham even tried to offer an alternative solution through his own working in the flesh with Hagar. But God speaks decisively to Abraham that this is not his intended plan, And then Abraham responds in obedience by circumcising himself along with his whole household. So this brings us up to date uh, with where Abraham and Sarah are, but I have just a couple more notes before we jump into chapters 18 here. In chapters 18 and 19, we will see that they fit together as a single narrative that flows very chronologically, and I think this has some significant impact to the text, so I'd like to just put that in your brain as we go through this. And therefore, we should have, uh, uh, we, should, we should remember that. So the last thing I will mention before, as we read our text, is that this appears uncertain if the beginning of our story here is a separate chronological event from what we saw in last week's text, or if this is a further explanation of what the appearing of the Lord looked like in the previous chapter. I'm not sure I have a strong opinion as to where I stand on this, other than to say that the writer of the scriptures clearly had a purpose in separating and dividing scriptures as the Lord saw fit. So having said all that, we will jump into Genesis chapter 18. Starting in verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, 
and he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on. Since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent up to Sarah and said, quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah your wife shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women, women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them and set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed by him? For I have chosen him that he may command my command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked? Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, O let the Lord not be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. 
He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let the Lord not be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way, and he finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Pray that we would have open hearts and open minds that we can learn what it is you have to say to us this morning as we jump into your text, as we learn, and, and that we will continue to grow as we do this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage begins with the appearing of the Lord. The all-caps lettering of this word implies the covenant name of God, which is Yahweh. And unlike his other appearances to Abraham, this one is unique, as God shows up in the flesh as a man. In other words, God in flesh. This is what we call in theological terms a theophany, which is an appearing of God. This is not to be confused though with a vision or when the Lord speaks. This means some kind of fleshly appearance. And while the reader is privy to this information, um, it is not clear that Abraham knows who this individual is. And not just one individual, but three men. Some have tried to point to this passage and say that the Trinity is implied here because Yahweh is identified, and then these three men appear. However, this, this view doesn't hold up, as we will see later, that the other two men are identified that are identified with God are in fact angels. But rather, the fact that there are three men here helps simply to solidify the fact that Abraham does not immediately know who he is dealing with. To him, this appears to be a, part, a party of travelers that would be in need of rest, refuge, and provisions, and Abraham is more than happy to oblige. The scene is a bit comical as it starts out here, as I don't know of too many people who would wake up in the middle of a siesta and spring into action to serve others the way that this hundred-year-old man does in this story. It says in verse 2 that when he saw them, he ran. I am 38 years old, and to be honest, something I have never done is woken up out of the middle of a nap and begun to run immediately to serve someone else. That's uh, just, I've never done that. And yet, this is what we see here. This hundred-year-old man does that. After Abraham makes haste to meet these travelers, he addressed them as Lord. Now, most translations here translate this as Lord with a capital L. And pending on your translation, you might have a note that gives an option for a lowercase l, which I, which would be significant as it tells us whether or not Abraham realizes who he's talking to. So I'd like to note that the Hebrew word here could possibly be significant. I don't want to spend too much time getting bogged down into the Hebrew words and technicalities, but there are going to be a couple times today in our text that this will have some potential impact. Um, and so this is one of those instances. The word here that is used for Lord is the Hebrew word Adonai. The word Adonai is, used, is usually reserved for directly addressing God. You could think of it as a title like Mr. President. You know who you're talking about. It's not just any president. It is the president, Mr. President. Um, so this term Adonai is used to directly address God as the Lord. Uh, whereas Adonai is used to address any person who has authority. You have Adonai, which is Lord with a lowercase l, and Adonai, which is Lord with an up or with a capital L, which is like a title. So the word Adonai is used here, but 
There is a bit of discussion and disagreement on this word and its meaning, and I say all of that to say this. It is unclear if at this point in the story that Abraham recognizes that this is God in the flesh. Come to visit him. It could be that Abraham recognizes that he's addressing the God of the universe, or it could be that he is just showing humility to someone that he sees as deserving respect. And I'm of the opinion that the latter is the case. I feel that this way, based on a couple different action, actions that we'll see later in the text, but at the very least, I think that it is safe to say that Abraham recognizes this is a person of importance that he shows incredible hospitality to. And we see this in his urgency to approach them and the way that he addresses himself as servant in verse 3. We also see it in verse 4 and 5 with his generous offer of washing their feet and refreshments. These special guests obliged Abraham, and then Abraham got to work. Once again, he moves quickly in verse 6, where he tells Sarah to get the bread ready quickly. And again in verse 7, he ran to get a choice calf and have it prepared quickly for his guests. After the food preparations were tasked, we see in verse 8 that Abraham brought appetizers and stood by, waiting on them while they ate. This continues to show his readiness to serve any need that might arise for his guests. Hebrews 13.2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And where I won't die on this hill, I'm of the opinion that up to this point, Abraham's encounter with God, he does not know exactly who he's dealing with. Abraham is showing hospitality to strangers that he doesn't know by name. And I think one way in which we see this is the fact that Abraham offers them food. If he knew he was standing in the presence of God, the God of the universe, what could Abraham offer him that he would need? Instead, I imagine, he would simply bow at his feet and worship him. And after that, he would seek to know what, the, what his Lord would want of him. And so I'm not of the opinion that Abraham realizes who he's dealing with at this point. But even though I don't believe he knew exactly who he was talking to, I would say that given the attentiveness and urgency that Abraham shows for his guests, he definitely realizes these aren't just bums wandering the desert looking for work, but rather they were travelers of some importance, likely due to the way they were adorned and carried themselves. And many things could be said about this text. We could talk about Abraham's ability to recognize a need and offer help. As we noted earlier that this event happened while it was in the heat of the day, and common for warmer cultures that are in that climate, the heat of the day is a time to be under shelter. Traveling by air-conditioned car while listening to your favorite 90s band was not an option back then, unfortunately. And if you wanted to travel, it had to be done on foot. And to be traveling in the heat of the day on foot would be a tedious and difficult task, quite, even, quite possibly dangerous. And perhaps the urgency that Abraham is showing is so that he can offer them refreshment while also not holding them up. They are clearly traveling somewhere, so Abraham doesn't want to hold them up on their journey, but seeking to aid them, he wants to offer them a hasty refreshment so they could then continue traveling after the heat of the day had passed. And so we see Abraham's ability to recognize the needs of others and act accordingly. It could also be said that Abraham is generous. His initial offer was simply of washing feet and giving bread. But after they agreed, he had a calf slaughtered and brought milk, curds, and cheese. And perhaps this was Abraham's plan from the beginning, to tempt them to make a quick pit stop for water and bread, but then really pour it on thick to stay with meat and cheese and a comfortable place to stay. And even if that isn't the case, there's no denying that Abraham is generous to his traveling guests. 
We also see that Abraham has managed to keep his house in good order. When Abraham is ready to act, his household is also ready. Sarah is ready to serve the needs of her husband, and his livestock is well tended to and ready to be used, and his servants are ready and willing to follow the commands of their authority. And while we know that Abraham wasn't perfect himself, neither was every person in his household, yet we see that Abraham wants to accomplish a task when he wants to accomplish a task hastily, he and his whole household are ready to do so. And this is a testament to the order that Abraham has of his household, something that we are called to keep. If we want to be able to be generous and serve others, we need to first have our own affairs in order. Generosity cannot be given if you have no ability to give. And having your own affairs in order is a huge first step in that process. But while all these things are good and true, and we can even see them in the text. I'm not sure that this is the main point that the author is driving at with this story. So I don't want to spend too much time on it as we continue to look at the bigger picture. So let's continue with our story in chapter 18, as God is about to reveal himself with more clarity in these coming verses. Verse 9 begins a change in tone for this conversation. God begins to reveal more clearly that who he is to Abraham and Sarah. The verse begins with the word they. Now, it's obvious that this doesn't mean these three men rehearsed before, before time what they were going to say so they could speak in unison to Abraham. That would be pretty weird, actually. But the pronoun they is used here in order to signify what it, this conversation looks like from Abraham's perspective. Notice that back in verse 5, the word they was used to refer to who replied to Abraham. And here in verse 9, we see the word they used again to signify that up to this point, their dialogue, generally speaking, seems to be between the three men and Abraham. However, their question begins to reveal something more to Abraham, and by extension, Sarah, who's listening in the tent nearby. This person identifies Abraham's wife by her name. And notice that he doesn't call her by her old name that she has used for the past 90 years of her life. If this person had asked for Sarai, then possibly this would have been merely a forgotten acquaintance from the past. But instead, this person identifies Abraham's wife by her recently given covenant name, Sarah. This is her name that she received from her husband who was ordered by God to do so in the previous chapter. Only God himself could have access to this knowledge. At this point, God is beginning to reveal himself to Abraham and Sarah in a more clear and decisive way. And then after Abraham responds to this question, we see the Lord's response. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar by any means, but as I was studying this, it appears that the ESV decided to clarify who was speaking here and translated this as the Lord with all caps. And while it is true that the Lord is the one speaking, the actual Hebrew word that is used here is merely a singular pronoun, he. As a matter of fact, it's the exact same word from the previous verse that signifies when Abraham is speaking, he. And I think this has potential importance. I believe that it is a rhetorical device to signify that Abraham is paying closer attention to the one that stands distinguished amongst the three visitors. Since this man identified Abraham's wife by her covenant name, now Abraham's attention is singular. Who is this person who knows my wife by name? And not just her name that was common to all over the past 90 years, her recently given covenant name that was given by the creator of heaven and earth. And so while the ESV is not 
wrong in its identification that it is, in fact, the Lord who is doing the talking. All the other major translations say something along the lines of, and he said, or, and then one of them said. And this is to show that we are going from a group of people talking to a single person talking. And I think this shows that Abraham's awareness of just who is, who is in his presence is now being abundantly clear. And it is at this point we see God further add some specificity of his promise to Abraham. For the first time in 24 years, he gives a time description to the promise of his child. He tells Abraham that his wife Sarah will give birth within a year's time. After 24 years of waiting on God to come through on his promise, he is finally bringing it to fruition in his timing. And while Abraham made many mistakes over the past 24 years, we know that he believed God, which we see this clearly in the heavily quoted passage from chapter 15 that says, and he believed God and he continued and he counted it to him as righteousness. And despite Abraham trying to bring his promise to fruition through the flesh, God has been faithful and has even promised him that he would give him his promised heir through his wife, Sarah. We saw God make this abundantly clear to Abraham in last week's message in chapter 17. And even after God promised, even after God's promise, we see him laughing at the absurdity of a hundred-year-old man fathering a child. But God continues to stretch Abraham's faith and prove to him that God will accomplish his promises. But as we see here in our story today, this appearing is not just for the edification of Abraham, but also for Sarah. Since God has appeared to Abraham in the flesh, now Sarah can hear and see him as well. And as we see in verse 10, that Sarah was listening just behind the tent door. And then in verse 11, reminds us once again of the scenario of Abraham and Sarah. As we've established before, when God made his initial promise to Abraham, he was 75, and his wife would have been 66. If Sarah had gotten pregnant right then and there with her husband Abraham, that would have been quite significant news. It's not every day that we see a 66-year-old woman give birth. I did a little research on this topic, and it appears that the oldest woman in recent recorded history to conceive naturally and then give birth was a woman by the name of Dawn Brooks in 1997. She was 59 years old when she conceived, putting her around age 60 at time of birth. And so while it would have been quite phenomenal had Sarah conceived at age 66, it could have possibly been explained away as something just really strange but natural. But as we see here in verse 11, the point is stressed that they were not just old. They were beyond old. The time of menopause for Sarah was so far in the rearview mirror that she couldn't even see it. At age 66, well, that would have been pretty crazy to get pregnant, but perhaps doable. But now at age 90? And so the point is here that the only way that this could be possible would be a miraculous moving of God himself. And what was Sarah's response? Just like her husband, she laughed. <laughs> the absurdity of giving birth at age 90, it is kind of funny when you think about it. Although, I don't think this was a tickling of the funny bone kind of laugh for Sarah. It was probably more like a scoffing laugh at the ridiculousness of this entire situation. That ship had sailed. The alarm clock went off ages ago, and now Sarah is going to have a baby? And notice that even in her question to herself, she asked if she would have pleasure. 
It appears that one possible interpretation of this is that Abraham and Sarah were so far past the point of youth that they were not even sexually active during this time of life. And thus the question, will I have pleasure now that I'm old, draws attention to the absurdity of having children without sexual activity. Perhaps now we even have a better understanding of why she laughed. This is beyond ridiculous. Others think that this word pleasure would better be translated to just conceive, where she's merely asking about the absurdity of conceiving at the ridiculous age of 99, even with sexual activity. But either way, it's clear that Sarah is only thinking in natural terms. Because she is not actively believing in the limitless power of God, she laughs to herself about the nature of this ridiculous promise. Because this could never happen through natural means, and if you are only thinking that God can act through natural means, then this is something to laugh about. But as we will see in a moment, this is no laughing matter. And so finally, in verse 13, we see the Lord speaks to Abraham. It is now abundantly clear, the reader, Abraham, and Sarah, that this is Yahweh who is speaking to them. As I pointed out earlier, that the attention of Abraham goes from noticing a plurality of men in verse 9 to a singular in verse 10, and finally to the covenant name of God in verse 13. If Abraham and Sarah were in doubt previously to who they were talking to, it is now made abundantly clear. The God and creator of the universe is speaking. And with this in mind, his question, ironically, seems a bit funny to me. He says, why did you laugh, Sarah? Don't you know who I am? As if the fact that you are 90 is some kind of obstacle to God? I created the world with all of its complexities with the word from my mouth. And so Sarah, laughing at the power of God, shows that she is at the very least only thinking in naturalistic terms. Or at worst, she just straight up doesn't believe that God can overcome this obstacle. She is doubting the very power of God. The story reminds me of Psalm 2, which is one of my favorite psalms. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Is there, there is an irony here. The irony is this, that mankind who is created by God himself, he is in rebellion against God because of his unbelief. And he's described here in bug-like terms, working against the God of the universe. It truly is a comical setting in which God laughs at the futile attempts to thwart the plans of God. There is no amount of effort that mere man can give that will contradict the will of God. God is just simply too powerful. His power is limitless. There is nothing that he can't accomplish. And yet, how often have we found ourselves laughing at God? We laugh at the God who has every right to laugh at our futile attempts to control our own circumstances. How often have we doubted his power to accomplish his promises? Have we doubted his power to restore joy from our sin? Have we doubted his power to save a loved one from their sin? Have we doubted his power to sustain us through difficult or painful times? Have we doubted his goodness in all circumstances? Have we found ourselves laughing at God's power, his goodness, or his truthfulness? From Sarah's perspective, it is clearly impossible to bear a child at this stage in life 
through normal, natural means or effort of their own. And this is the mindset through which Sarah is thinking. It just can't happen through any effort of her own. And she knows this. It has been cemented into her brain that the time for bearing children has long since passed. She has no ability to bring this about on her own. But is anything too hard for God? God asks this question in 14, verse 14, which has the obvious answer of no, and then promises to provide them with their heir within a year's time. God is honest and true. But one of the attributes that is required for God to be able to fulfill his promises with perfection is his power. There's nothing that God can't accomplish. And this is why he can make the promises that he makes. Because he is able to deliver. And now, Abraham and Sarah are going to get to see God deliver the impossible with his power. Often, our biggest problem in life is that we have our eyes so focused on ourselves that we can't see what is actually happening all around us. God is everywhere displayed in his creation. Romans 1 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. And while this passage in Romans 1 is primarily talking about unbelievers who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, even that we as believers often have the same problem. We forget the truth that is all around us. We forget the truth that God is everywhere. We forget that he is good. We forget that he is the supreme authority over all of creation, that he is merciful and gracious, that he is righteous and just, and we forget that nothing is impossible with God. He is the all-powerful creator who is mighty to save us from our sins. There is no sin that Christ cannot overcome. But in order for us to recognize this, we first have to get our eyes off of ourselves. We are often blinded to these truths because our point of view is too small. Because we have our eyes on ourselves and only think in life of terms of accomplishing our own will, we quickly forget that God is sovereign over all of creation and that he is going to accomplish his will. In fact, he laughs at those that think they are accomplishing something of their own plan. And as we see here in our text this morning, God makes this abundantly clear to Sarah, who apparently still has doubt in her heart about God's plan. And he makes it clear that nothing is impossible with God. We have seen over the last six chapters that God has potentially, has patiently been stretching and growing Abraham's faith. And Sarah has been along for the ride watching God work with her flawed husband. She has obediently followed this God who called them out. But after all that God has accomplished through her husband, she still is struggling to trust completely in God's plan. God has addressed Abraham's trust in his own fleshly effort. But apparently Sarah is still not quite there yet. And so she makes the same mistake that her husband made in the previous chapter. God is graciously addressing Sarah's unbelief. And now, for the first time in 24 years, they have a date. God tells Sarah that the time is near. Within a year, she will have a child. The time has come for God to display his power by keeping this seemingly impossible promise 
to provide an heir to a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman. Something that could only happen by the miraculous power of God. God is making his power known to his chosen, in his timing, and for his purposes. Abraham and Sarah are learning that nothing is impossible with God. They are learning that God is truly sovereign over all of creation because there is no limit to his power. And it is because of his power that he is to be feared, which is what we see here next. As Sarah recognizes what she has done and who she has done it against, she denies that she laughed. As the saying goes, sin begets more sin. Sarah doubted the power of God and when and when called out on her on it, in fear she denied it. So now she can add the sin of lying to her sin of unbelief. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden, after they sinned by eating the fruit, they then continued in sin by lying and blame-shifting. No doubt, admitting when we sin might be one of the hardest things on the planet to do. Why is this so hard for us? We all know it. We know in our hearts that we're sinners. We know that there's only one holy and perfect God, and we know that we fall short of his perfection. This is plainly evident to all. So then why is it so hard for us to admit when we fall short? Just take ownership. Say these simple words. I was wrong. I have sinned. <laughs> Anyone who has ever gotten those words to come out of their mouth knows it's extremely difficult to do. And we see here that God doesn't let Sarah off the hook without confronting her sin with truth. He says, no, but you did laugh. This is once again only something that the sovereign God of the universe could know. Remember that Sarah said this to herself in the tent. It's likely she didn't even speak audibly. It could have just been merely a thought to herself. But God knows even the tiniest thought that passes through our hearts, and he knows it here as well. And God, in his mercy, won't let us continue in sin. He calls out Sarah's sin. Make no mistake, this is a great act of love on God's part. God will judge all sin. And this is why God lovingly brings his children to understand the need for repentance. God does this by imparting truth to us so that we can see our need for him. Because the truth is that we have all fallen short of God's righteousness, of his righteous standard. And not only that, but we have likely all tried to suppress this truth. We've tried to hide it from God and from others and from ourselves. The ultimate lie that we tell ourselves is that we have not sinned, that we have not fallen short, that our actions are not deserving of righteous punishment. When the truth is, we've all fallen short of God's righteous standard. We have all sinned against God and others. And we have all tried to hide this truth. But God won't let his children continue in their state of rebellion. He reveals truth to his children. He will confront sinners with the truth. He will not let his children continue on in their sin. And this is the beauty of the gospel. If we would repent of our sin and put our faith in the Son of Jesus Christ to pay our debt for our sin, then we will be forgiven. We will be made righteous before God because Jesus will give us his righteousness. No, that doesn't mean that we'll never again sin on this earth, but it does mean that all our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. And with our sins forgiven, 
Then we are now His children. We have entered into the family of God, and now as a result, He will not let us continue in our sin. Rather, He will continue to conform us into the image of His Son. His Son, who is the perfection, who is perfection itself. And this means continuing to reveal and confront our sin. And since we know that there is no limit to His power and knowledge, we shouldn't, be, we shouldn't expect to be able to hide our sin from God because that is the sort of thing that God laughs at. After God graciously addressed the unbelief of Sarah, our story continues in verse 16, where God and his two angels, who were followed by Abraham, continued on in their journey. And while on their way, God asked a question to himself, which obviously is for our benefit because this is, this is his way of revealing himself to Abraham and therefore to us. And what is the answer to God's question? Should God hide from Abraham, who is his chosen servant, who will bring about God's intended blessing upon all the earth? Should he hide this intention to judge the nation of Sodom for their wickedness? Of course not. God is continuing to reveal himself and his plan to Abraham. And he is about to demonstrate to Abraham that he is righteous and just. And it appears that one of the main reasons that God is revealing this to Abraham is so that he can then pass this truth on to his children. Verse 19 says, For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. God is about to unleash his righteous judgment on a wicked city. And this is meant to be a warning to all, but especially to Abraham and for his descendants. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And as Pastor Scott has said many times before, fear means fear. It's really quite simple. God is righteous, and he will do justice, which means... Judgment will be had, and this is reason to fear God. And this example of justice is meant to be used as an example to be passed down from generation to generation. And why is that? As verse 19 states, it is so that his children will keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. John Calvin quotes comments on this passage of Scripture by saying, Wherefore, it is the duty of parents to apply themselves diligently to the work of communicating what they have learned from the Lord to their children. There is, however, no doubt that the gross ignorance which reigns in the world is the just punishment of men's idleness. For whereas the greater part close their eyes to the offered light of heavenly doctrine, yet there are those who stifle it by not taking care to transmit it to their children. The Lord, therefore, righteously takes away the precious treasure of his word. To punish the world for its sloth. Parents, we have a duty to pass on to our children the light that has been given to us. If God has revealed his truth to us, then why would we would just be downright selfish to keep it to ourselves? And yes, this means all that God has revealed to us. We tell of his love, of his grace, and of his mercy, but we also tell of his righteousness and his holiness and the judgment that is sure to come. If we do not, 
you can expect for God's word to cease to exist in our society. And sadly, is this not the direction that our society is headed? Our culture continues barreling towards ultimate destruction and judgment as we forget the truth that has been revealed. We live in a country that sacrifices roughly 3,000 children a day on the altar of sexual freedom. Children's public school libraries are filled with pornography, parading as education. Doctors are willingly cutting off the healthy body parts of young 15-year-old girls for financial profit under the guise of health care. Large groups of people parade through the streets celebrating their sexual perversions in front of little children and call it love. Drug and alcohol addiction continues to skyrocket. We have civic leaders that are grossly incompetent and many of them unable to string together a coherent sentence. And these are just a sample of some of the things that prove we live in a culture that is under judgment. God is taking away his word from us and turning us over to our vices. And it is clear the reason. We have been idle. Christians have not done their necessary due diligence to instruct and teach our children to fear the Lord. And now we're paying for it. Let us heed this admonition. We have a duty to impart the light that has been given to us the, to, the next gener, to impart it to the next generation. Teaching and instructing them to submit to our holy creator, to remind them of his righteous judgment that is sure to come, and to encourage them to repentance and faith in the God who loves. And so, how are we to respond to a society that is deserving of judgment? Are we in any place ourselves to be able to cast any judgment? Absolutely not. God is the one who will cast judgment. But as a sinner that is equally deserving of judgment, Abraham gives us a picture of an individual that attempts to intercede on the behalf of others. We see in verse 22 that Abraham stood before the Lord. And as we'll be able to, con to confirm in the coming verses, this was not an act of defiance against the will of God, but rather, this is an attempt to capture the attention of the Lord in order to intercede on behalf of the Sodomites. Some have said that Abraham is, inter is interceding for his nephew Lot, who is living in Sodom. And while I think it's fair to say that he is concerned for his nephew, uh, I, I think that this intercession, though, is clearly more than just for his nephew. If it was, he could have simply asked God to spare his nephew and his family. But as easy as that would have been, he instead intercedes for the whole city of Sodom. And notice the way that he goes about this. First, he appeals to the character of God. This question that we see here in verse 23 is a rhetorical question. Of course God wouldn't sweep up the righteous with the wicked. The God of Abraham is a God of righteous justice. Surely he wouldn't punish an undeserving participant. And we see later in verse 25 that Abraham answers his own rhetorical question by saying, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Abraham knows that God has set out to punish the wicked and that this is a righteous thing for God to do. And so Abraham, thinking that there are righteous people that will suffer the same fate as the wicked, he then appeals for God to spare this wicked city if he can find 50 righteous people. 
Now, the scriptures don't explicitly tell us how big the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah are. I read online somewhere that the estimated approximate population would have been somewhere between 600 and 2,000 people. And given the early time period in which this would have taken place, this seems plausible to me. Uh, however, when considered to other cities in scriptures, it's tremendously small, actually. Think of Nineveh uh, and Jonah, which has 120,000 children, plus the adults. Um, but even if we take these very conservative numbers for, Sol for Sodom, it would appear that making a task of finding 50 righteous people in a city of 600 wouldn't be too hard, would it? Or would it? But notice that even after God agrees to Abraham's request, Abraham continues to appeal for Sodom. And he does this by recognizing what he is before God. In verse 27, he says he is just at dust and ashes. Even after God grants Abraham his initial request, Abraham still recognizes who he is. Compared to God, Abraham is merely a man that recognizes his place. And this is the continued tone Abraham takes as he intercedes to God on behalf of Sodom. I think it's important that we... We don't make a couple inappropriate applications out of this text. And the first one is not to see this as some form of Abraham's art of the deal. For starters, this could hardly be seen as dealing because Abraham has nothing to offer God in return for his requests. Nor is Abraham attempting to flatter or manipulate God by his acts of humility. Rather, Abraham is using his status as a friend of God in all humility to simply intercede for Sodom by appealing to the righteous character of God. And he's doing this with the belief that there are righteous people that will be swept away with the wicked. The second inappropriate application that one might make is that there is some magic number that God has determined for his judgment on a tribe, city, or nation. The number that Abraham eventually gets it down to is not some sort of standard by which we can apply to other scenarios of God's judgment. But rather, I think the purpose and application of this text are twofold. First, we should never forget that God is righteous and holy. And therefore, any wickedness is deserving of punishment. We know this on a spiritual level, reaching back to Adam and Eve. But here we see a reminder that there is often real-life consequences that take place in this lifetime for rebellion against God. And this example of justice is ultimately a gift from God because fear is a gift from God. It's a gift because it causes us to take our eyes off of ourselves and then put them on the one that is deserving of our attention. It is only then that we will begin to see him for all of his beauty. We will see that he is loving and gracious and righteous. He is the Holy One that is deserving of all of our love and affections. Also, since we know that judgment could come at any time for the unbeliever, we should also have an imminent concern for those that stand condemned. Here we see Abraham show great concern for his neighbors. These neighbors that are not part of his covenant promises. As the matter of fact, these people actually stand in direct opposition to God's covenant promises of the land. And yet, we see Abraham has a genuine concern for the people of Sodom pleading on behalf of the righteous people that he believed were there. In fact, he shows so much concern for them that he seemingly gets his number of sparing the city down to ten. 
ten righteous men. Abraham continued to speak with God with such perseverance that he was able to give a tremendous gift to the city of Sodom. God had graciously agreed to spare the city for the sake of ten righteous men. Considering the times in which we live, do we show that same concern for our fellow countrymen? Do we show concern for our city or township? Do we spend time in prayer interceding for our neighbors that stand condemned before our holy God? Perhaps God's judgment just might be delayed for the sake of a few or a remnant. Therefore, let us not give up. Let us preach the gospel to all, for judgment in this life and in the next could be imminent. Let us not forget that despite our God being holy, that he is also merciful. Let us pray for others with a concern that shows the urgency of their situation. Sinners that have not had their sins forgiven will receive judgment, and this should concern us greatly, and then drive us to intercede on their behalf to the only one that has power to save. God is mighty to save. Let us put our faith in him to do so. Please join me in a word of prayer. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. For the complete sermon archive and more information about the church, please go to visitnvbc.com.